everybody, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. I'm Rachel Hartman, and with me today is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. How are you, Paul? I'm good, Rachel. I'm good. Um, <laughs> excellent intro. How, how, Thank you. How did you feel that went? Ooh, I, uh, I practiced it for a while, <laughs> and uh, I think I pulled it off. Yeah. Okay, I think so, I qualify. <laughs> okay, so uh, obviously some people are going to have some questions at this point that we should address. So, uh, yeah, well, what, why, who are you and why are you introducing <laughs> my podcast? Um, yeah, so I, I guess there might be a, actually some point of confusion with my last name. So I was on the podcast as a guest a few times before as Rachel Ernstoff. And because I'm getting married, I'm changing my name. I know a very non-feminist thing to do, but um, it's going to be Rachel Hartman from now on. Uh, and yeah, I just I have been on the podcast three times before, and I liked being a guest, but I felt that I could probably do more, <laughs> and so I just decided to uh, worm my way into the position of co-host, and you know, maybe someday I'll take over as main host. You never know, Paul. Yeah, I will. Well, well, maybe. I I was thinking the progression is probably more like you join the podcast as co-host. It goes great for a while, then you get sick of me, you quit the podcast, and then somebody else who's like a fan of the podcast now, they worm their way in to be co-host. And I just keep cycling through co-hosts as they <laughs> just get sick of me progressively. But I hadn't thought of like actual mutiny that you, I, I, I could be the one. <laughs> well, it's too late now. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, uh, the fox is in the, the hen house now. So yeah, no, um, I... Uh, so obviously Smriti, as I said, got, got sick of my shit and, and left the podcast. Um, and, you know, you know, we missed her. She was great. And I tried to keep going for a while by myself uh, and did a, a few interview podcasts just talking to people. But I really found it to be not as much fun and a lot more effort to be trying to just find guests all the time. And I realized that my favorite episodes of the podcast were really just when... I was just talking with Smriti about some things that had happened and I actually thought those were kind of our strongest episodes and one strength of the podcast was our ability just to sort of take an event and just quickly sort of respond to it and put out a podcast quite quite quickly and I thought like this is something kind of unique about more of a comment that we, that we used to be able to do um, and I had sort of lost that ability so I wasn't really enjoying it as much without a, without a co-host and yeah you've been on three times I think we agree about a lot of stuff but disagree about some stuff as well um, every time you've been on I think uh, your colleague Manny has been on as well well there was one time that I was on uh, oh, oh, right, just right, me, right. the first oh, time yeah, that's but true. yeah the other two times was with Manny yeah yeah so that's a good that's a good segue we should shout out Manny he I think he uh, after Smriti left had kind of an assumption that he might be invited on as a co-host so if you're listening to this Manny I guess I just don't want to have an argument every single episode of the podcast and have to be fact-checking things and like looking things up and Manny is somebody who really likes to bring data to a conversation so you'll be in a discussion and he'll start talking about some data that you're not across and you'll sort of have, like, you can either just let him say what he wants about that data or you have to sort of stop the podcast and, like, look at it yourself and see if it actually supports the conclusions that he's making and stuff like that. So, yeah, for me, it's just a lot of effort to talk to Manny. So, uh, yeah, Manny, 
sorry, but like we'll, <laughs> we'll have you on again soon. And um, anyway, very long preamble, but welcome to the pod. How does it feel? I mean, obviously you're a grad student, and but now it's like you've made it, right? Like this is this is just. A really huge achievement, obviously, for a grad student like yourself. Yeah. So, like, how does it, it, it feel? It is my lifelong dream to uh, be on a podcast. So, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do now for the rest of my life. Um, but yeah, it feels good. It feels good to have an uh, outlet to discuss, like you said, like things that I am thinking about throughout the week about um, academia and. Uh, Directions that I think are it's going in that are not very good. Um, ways that we can improve it. I have I do have a lot of thoughts about that. I don't know how original they all are, but I guess it's good for people to be talking about these things, and especially people like us. I think it is important to be voicing um, opinions that are maybe not being heard as much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's nice to have that outlet and. To know that maybe there are people out there who are interested in hearing our random thoughts mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so yeah hopefully uh, you don't lose all of your subscribers <laughs> and uh, yeah I'm looking forward to it yeah so um, that's a pretty good segue into what we wanted to discuss today so I mean we, we met up I drove through North Carolina and we, we met up for coffee and um, you suggested one uh, potential topic, which I think is quite interesting, but also somewhat difficult to talk about, uh, which is mentorship and um, grad student faculty relationships. And actually, it was awkward when we had uh, Mickey Inslicht on the podcast. I knew that Smriti was going through a lot of sort of difficult times with her mentors, her uh, faculty advisors. And I thought she wanted to talk about it on the podcast, but sort of when we brought it up on the podcast, she, yeah, like, and very understandably didn't want to sort of give any details of anything that was going on um, with her and her advisors. So I think it's uh, it's very difficult. Like, um, so in in that sense, like, um, this conversation sort of came up because I just saw something on Twitter that I thought was interesting uh and it was um something that you see quite a lot which was sort of grad students talking about what makes for a good advisor or a bad advisor right so like obviously recently we had um i guess no grad student interviews weren't recent i guess the application season is coming up for grad schools so there was a you know every year there seems like there's a spate of uh, advice threads on twitter about how to choose a good faculty advisor and you know what are the red flags like what makes for a good advisor what what makes for a bad advisor and it's always like the same kind of stuff like are they going to make time for you? Are they going to let you have good work-life balance? Are they a nice, warm person? Um, what, you know, like, talk to the students in their lab. Is, is it a happy environment? Is there a good community there? Yada, yada, yada. I don't know. I, 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 rarely, I rarely read these threads. But it, 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 I, it struck me as interesting. And the thing that occurred to me is, like, I 
have seen this version of Twitter thread a lot. Like I've seen this, like what makes for a good advisor, what makes for a bad advisor. Uh, but I've never ever seen anybody talk about what makes for a good grad student or what makes for a bad grad student. And it just, it struck me as one of these funny, these funny quirks or these funny sort of unwritten rules that like you cannot punch down, right? Like no, and I, I think I did a tweet that was basically like, I wonder if there's any psych academic who would be brave enough to write a thread about like red flags of choosing grad students like because they exist bad grad students do exist like it's not i just don't think it's possible that they would not right like uh, and i think there's very likely good and bad mentors and there's very likely good and bad grad students but it's funny to me that we are only allowed to talk about one side of that equation but you had sort of an interesting disagreement with that um and you sort of, okay, I don't want to straw man your view, but you seem to sort of be expressing the position that no, it actually is always the advisor's fault if the grad student fails. And there's, there's no, there's literally no grad student who couldn't succeed with the right uh, mentorship. So that might be a straw man, so. <laughs> yeah, okay, me. so maybe a little bit of a straw man just because like, I think that it's always bad to talk in generalizations, um, but no, uh, it, yeah, I think it is usually bad to talk in generalizations, and um, it's not the case that all grad students are good and have the potential to succeed, but I think that, I don't want to like put an exact percentage on it, 95, 99, whatever, the vast majority of grad students, I think, um, are at the core good grad students or have the potential to be um, and I think like that makes sense if you think about the admission process uh, and and the competition for getting into grad school like every uh, PhD position in psychology at least has hundreds of applicants um, I don't know if every but like most of them do and one person gets the the position and so you would think that that person would be a good grad student and if they're not then that's hang the on. fault of the mentor for choosing the wrong one hang on okay if that logic held why would it not hold for faculty i mean it's much more because selective faculty aren't being selected for being good mentors they're being selected for being good researchers but grad students are being selected also for being for being potentially good grad students for being good researchers and um that's what it takes to be a grad student. But what it takes to be a PI in a lab is to have a lot of publications, more or less, in our one institution at least. And so, yeah, they're not, they could be really great, world famous, have dozens of, hundreds of publications, but still not know anything about mentoring, and they would still be mentoring grad students. Um, and I think that's part of where that asymmetry comes in. Another sort okay. of and yeah yeah but I sorry mean, do you wanna yeah no uh, good point I guess I mean I think all right but would you agree there's bad school teachers yeah I mean they're selected 
I guess like it's it's less selective. Okay, keep talking. There's got to be an example. <laughs> There's got to be an example that uh, that shoots this down. I mean, you're right that faculty are not selected uh, on the basis of they'll be good mentors for grad students, and they're not. Nobody really trains anyone. Yeah, it's not just the selection, to, right? They don't receive any training, and they also like. I think this is. I'm just. Assuming they don't receive a lot of feedback about how well they're doing no. in mentoring, like I don't think like I wouldn't talk to my advisor and say like Hey, I think that you're like ABC you're doing great on, but I think you can improve in your mentorship of me by doing X Y Z. Like I'm not gonna say any of that, um, and I doubt any most grad students do. Yeah, you think that's that's just the power dynamic, right? Yeah, I think. I mean. Yeah, probably. It's it's fascinating because, yeah, I I had one advisor that I could I could never <laughs> like confront about anything. Like it was just our relationship was very like non-confrontational and stuff like that. My other advisor, we we actually had a very open, honest, confrontational relationship. And I remember in my first year talking to them. And saying almost exactly what you're saying, like I really think you're doing the wrong thing with when you did X, when you did Y, and, and like actually we had a fight, like just a like literally yelling at each other uh, fight. But it, I think our relationship was better for it. Like there was just you know once you once you have had a few fights and then come back from them you, you you just know that it's okay sort of to express yourself and stuff like that and I never got to that point with another advisor even when I was like super annoyed at them like there was one point where all this person had to do was send an email for me like to to make sure I could you know submit my dissertation in time all they needed to do was send an email because I was using some material that had been in a manuscript that we had put out for publication and you just have to get permission for, from co-authors to do that so all, literally all it is is an email to this email address on Berkeley campus saying yes it's okay to use this material I had to send four emails four emails and this person still never did it and it, it just felt like this is this is insane like ha, what because I find it really awkward to write these follow-up emails, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where you're like, hey, so, sorry, just, just checking in. Did you do this thing yet? And, like, four emails just to spend 20 seconds for me writing an email so I can submit my bloody dissertation. And I was so upset about it. Like, it was killing me. But I still never even confronted this person about it just because of this this power dynamic. Um, yeah. You don't feel I like mean, you can. I think it's... Yeah, like I think that's an awkward conversation to have, even if there's no power dynamic. Um, but then you know that also plays a role. And yeah, I think like uh, okay. So sorry. Another point that I wanted to make was that advisors, like, they're taking on a responsibility when they to when they accept a student, and they're com- they're making a commitment. They're saying like. I am going to train you, advise you, mentor you, get you through grad school, prepare you for life in academia, hopefully also other opportunities nowadays. They should prepare you for 
whatever comes, you know, whatever it'll be, industry, whatever. But that commitment is going like from the mentor to the grad student. The grad student is committing to something. They're committing to being a grad student, but it's more of a commitment to themselves. Like they're committing to like go through grad school. Maybe there's some implicit commitment to like co-author some papers with the mentor, but it's not so much of like that, that that's more of like that asymmetry is like the advisor is committing to you, but you're not committing to help them in any particular way. Um, and so I think that they have much more of a responsibility to be like a good advisor to you than you have a responsibility to be a good grad student to them, if that makes sense. Hmm. They have more of a responsibility to be. Yeah, I, I guess I kind of see what you're saying. Um, I mean, faculty, I think a lot of faculty are in the job because they like doing research. That's their passion, you know. Um, not because they like teaching, not because they like mentoring grad students. I mean, uh, mentoring grad students is just something you sort of have to do. And then, yeah, nobody teaches you to do it. You get this faculty job and then all of a sudden this is now part of your life, is mentoring grad students. And personally, I find it really scary, right? Like, to the idea that you have to select this person and then yeah mentor them for five years and you know their their success or failure as a scientist is now like on on your shoulders um it's uh yeah like it is it is a big responsibility but i yeah i I also just think like in reality the way that it works as far as I can see is that like your advisors mentor you a little bit um, but you learn from so many sources in academia like um, from just reading papers from taking courses from other faculty from colleagues from other students like the the amount of your development that actually hinges on any of your advisors isn't that great, but I, I guess that could vary a lot um, depending on the situation. I mean, I know, like, I've heard some horror stories at Berkeley, like specific faculty who literally sort of had students in their lab and were like, okay, this is the project you're working on. Uh, and actually told them, look, stats, don't worry about it. We have a, like, I've hired a consulting company to do all the stats. You don't have to worry about that, right? So these students are not getting trained in statistical analysis. They're not even able to sort of, like, come up with research ideas and spearhead their own projects. They're literally kind of just these glorified research assistants whose names go on these papers and will come out at the other end of five years having learnt um, very little other than how to just be sort of a cog in a machine of like churning out publications. Um, so yeah, uh, you're supposed to be breaking up my monologues, but... Look. Yeah, I, I was about to jump in. I, I'll get better at that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think that 
like like I think it's important to think about who is responsible for the grad students learning and development and I agree with you that in the current state of the world um, in, probably in most universities although I mean I only have access to like my own experiences and the friends who I talk mm. to about this stuff so it's probably not that much but anecdotally um, yeah like our advisors are there to help out with papers and projects a little bit but they're usually not like holding our hands through statistical analyses or teaching us like all the the like small details of what it's like to be a grad student what it's like to succeed in academia and you're so you're sort of supposed to like soak it in but I don't think that that is a good model like I think that that's part of what's wrong with academia and or at least with social psych uh, yeah who knows what Mm -hmm. it's like in the rest of academia Mm -hmm. but because what it, all that does is, so you have this pool of really successful undergrads who, you know, they've got great grades, they have good ideas, they're passionate and creative and excited to, to go into academia. And then some of them have this extra ability to, like, teach themselves everything. And they're the ones who, probably like you, like, will go out and just, like, find their own courses that they want to take or read a book on uh, a manual on how to run an analysis and, like, figure it out themselves. And that's great, and they're going to be successful. But then the other 80% of people are sort of, like, I think, and that I think that I'm in that group, like, I signed up to grad school thinking I'm going to be trained in how to be a grad student. I'm going to in how to be an academic and a researcher. I'm going to learn all the skills that I need and I'm going to pe- someone's going to teach me these things. I'll take classes that will teach me everything that I need to know and I'll uh, you know my advisor is going to walk me through every detail of every project at least at the beginning until I like am on my feet a little bit. And it, it wasn't like that at all. I was, you know, thrown in headfirst and just, like, had to figure out how to swim. And I think that, like, that's doing a disservice to, to the students and to, like, science because we're really missing out on a lot of potential talent by just, like, restricting it to those people who, for whatever reason, can, like, do it all themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's pretty interesting. I, I think you're probably right. Like, I mean, there are certainly a lot of students who are very bright and very successful, but um, sort of are, are very used to. I don't want to say like it sounds bad having their hands held, but do you know what I mean? Like, really having. Uh, Clear, yeah, structure and clear instructions and stuff like that, and and yeah, grad school and especially research is not like that a lot. I mean, and different advisors certainly differ in this sense. Um, but yeah, like uh, I mean, uh, there was times, there was times in my grad school experience when I was just sort of thinking like with one of my advisors in particular like wait like isn't this isn't part of your job description to like be my advisor like you're not you're not doing anything like it's (laughs) just really hard to get you to do 
any work as my advisor. And I think, I think this person had really sort of just watched me operate for a while and just decided, oh, well, Paul's very independent. He, he kind of, he does what he wants. Uh, he, he's confident. He thinks he, he can do what he wants. And like, to some extent that was true, but also like, you know, if I have a manuscript and I want like feedback on it, then you know, it's your job. You have, you have to do that. Like you have to, even if it's even if it's a long manuscript and you don't want to spend that time, it's like, well, what have you done for me in the last three months? Like, give me, you know, carve out some a few hours and like spend that time. And it just felt really hard to do that. And I was like, wait, am I going crazy? Like, is this not this person's job? Like, so yeah, I mean, that's another issue, right? Is that there's no clear. There's no clear guidelines about how much time these people have to devote to each grad student. And I think that that, especially for faculty who are kind of research superstars and get sort of super excited about specific projects and want to be devoting all their time to that, I think if they have students who, where maybe the relationship isn't great or maybe that student's interested in stuff that they are not super passionate about and it's not exactly what they do, just becomes very easy for some students to be neglected uh, and not get much from advisors. I think you're right though, but I also wonder how you would go about uh, changing that or fixing that because, I mean, I just, I think I just have a bit more sympathy for the advisors in this scenario. Um, Maybe because in career-wise, I'm closer to that, closer to that position now. But I mean, what do you, what, yeah, like, what do you, what do you want, Rachel? Like, they're they're trying to they're trying to do research. They're trying to teach undergrads. They're trying to like run these departments and sit on all sorts of committees and stuff like that. And they have these labs with like eight different grads. I'd like, I just think, I just think it's a really hard. It's a really hard job. Um, yeah. And I am not... It's almost like you're suggesting we need some faculty who are purely devoted to training grad students. Um, but I don't think that would work because they would end up being the faculty that didn't make it as researchers themselves. So it's like, what do they know? Well, yeah. I mean, they might not know as much about being a successful researcher, but maybe they know more about how to teach yeah. research skills, and so maybe yeah. it ends up, like, evening out. But I don't know. I mean, I do agree that, like, there's so many demands on faculty's time, and, like, it's hard to figure out, like, what, the, what a good solution would be. But I don't really think that time is the main problem. I think, really, and this is, like a buzzword but I think the hidden curriculum is is a real thing and that we just and it, it's also like the fact that it's hidden or what parts of it are hidden is hidden to faculty members and I think we just need a better to do a better job like as a um, field to really like make clear what are all the things what are all the skills that you need what are all the steps that you need to take in order to be successful and just like have clear guides written out and then i think it is the faculty's responsibility to make sure that that information is being 
conveyed in a clear way to to the students. Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of where things break down is just people not knowing what they're supposed to be doing because it hasn't been made explicit enough and faculty will just assume that like you just you know because they know and mm. um, it's kind of hard to see. Can you give examples? Yeah, so like for example, so I'm I'm a mentor too, right? I have undergrad students that are working with me and um, just a few days ago was the deadline to submit an abstract for SPSB uh, for undergrads. And I have two undergrads who are going to submit an abstract and we've been working for the past month or so on the data that they're going to uh, write up for the poster. And they sort of like, they knew what the deadline was, but I didn't think that I had to like explain what an abstract looks like um, and how to write one and also that I should explain that they should read through the guidelines for how to submit and what's the character limit and like thinking about keywords and all these like little details that it just didn't occur to me that that's something that I should make explicit to them and it, I definitely should have like I don't think it's their responsibility to sit there and think what are the things that I need to ask about in order to write a good abstract um, because how would they even know what to ask or that they should be asking, right? Um, and so I think like little things like that uh, just pop up everywhere in research in academia, and it's it's really hard. Like you know, it, it was a failure on my part, and I acknowledge that. And like, mm -hmm. but now I've learned for next time. But if if there was mm -hmm. more structure. Mm -hmm in training me to train people, mm. I, maybe that wouldn't have happened. I don't know. Yeah, it's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I relate to that on some level. Like, even if I'm talking to undergrads who are planning to apply to grad school um, and want to prepare themselves for interviews, like, so my advice to people sort of going into grad school interviews is often like, the way I think about it is like to become a researcher, like to go from an undergrad to a successful grad student or, you know, a faculty or a researcher, there's like 10,000 things you have to learn, right? And, and sort of when you're in a grad school interview, nobody's expecting you to know all 10,000 of those things, right? But I think a lot of the time what faculty are sort of picking up on is how far are you along? Like, have you picked up 1,000 of those things yet or 500? And they're trying to find the students who are, uh, have a lot of potential but also are as far along that progression as possible. That's my experience anyway. And I actually failed in my first attempts at, at, at grad school interviews. And I think a lot of it was like, yeah, not knowing certain jargon yet and not really being far enough along that progression as you get molded into this very specific creature of like an academic researcher. One, one experience in particular, I remember I was in a, my first round of grad school interviews where I was rejected. One of the faculty asked me, so what kind of outcomes are you interested in? And what the faculty member meant was dependent variables. Right, outcomes. So this is this is jargon. But for me at that time, I didn't know that. So I thought like what she was saying was like, well, what do you want to be the end result of your research? And so I just sort of said something like, I guess just like human well-being, like 
like making the world a better place so and naive. stuff like that, right? Like, just want world peace. Yeah. So, but it was it, like there was all these just little moments where I was giving it away that I just wasn't. I couldn't speak like a researcher yet. I didn't know a bunch of this jargon and stuff like that. So I think like when you talk about hidden curriculum, I think it's right. I think like that stuff I do know what you mean but I also guess I would go back and just say there's yeah like if there's so many ways that you're going to learn these different things you know and it's really like yeah I guess your advisor has a big responsibility to be I guess just like really paying a lot of attention to your deficits and what you need and what maybe you don't know and where you're falling short and, and stuff like that. But I, yeah, I, I guess my, my experience is just so much, so much learning and not that much learning from my advisors. And I, mm-hmm. maybe that just colors my opinion of, uh, when I see people put so much responsibility and sort of blame on advisors for how, how grad students do, because, um, yeah, there's, there's just so many other ways to learn all these things, but I guess that goes, goes back to what you were saying about different people have different styles and some people might be more comfortable just like learning for themselves and and seeking out knowledge than other people other people might really hone in on their advisors and expect them to provide them everything and my god i hope i don't end up with that kind of gratitude (laughs) well i think it's also it is a little bit like in your power to like decide what kind of student you're going to end up with because you're selecting them and so and you know i think like ideally all faculty members would um, commit themselves to like helping students learn and develop no matter what kind of mm-hmm. style they have and how independent they are in like searching out information on their own but if you are the kind of if you just like don't want to do that or you feel like you can't and you're just the kind of advisor who you you want your students to be able to to be very independent and figure things out on your own you should just make that very clear when you're interviewing students and look for students who have a few years of experience doing research already maybe they've done a master's maybe they've been lab manager or something for a few years um and make sure that you really drill down into details because you know it's one thing to say i have two years of experience but it's another thing to like ask them like what exactly have you done in R like can you code um, not just have you gone through like a two week mm. boot camp but like ha- have you written scripts or mm. um, have you written a manuscript have you ever submitted an IRB like things like that that if you don't want to be taking the time to train your students to do that make sure that they already know it don't depend on them mm. just figuring it out on their own because mm. that's just like it's so inefficient and it's, I think, unfair to students who are maybe expecting mm-hmm. um, more training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Mm. It's interesting. So what do you think, how, you're at, uh, like, UNC, I mean, what, you don't have to talk about your own advisors in particular, but, like, how do you feel about the level of training 
there for grad students. I mean, I can talk about Berkeley. I mean, I, I know, like, at Berkeley, I was actually... It's, it's, it's interesting, and I, and I guess it goes back to my, my own individual approach to it, because I, I thought Berkeley was just incredible on some levels on the available grad-level coursework, right? Because in Australia, that's not a thing. There, there is no grad-level coursework. You come in, you have three years, you're supposed to just know what your research project is. If you want to learn something, you read the textbook, you know, like there's really no, um, you, you know, you work very much in isolation, very much just you and your advisor. It's kind of the English model. Um, the American model is very different where it's expected to be sort of like almost like an extension of undergrad with, uh, you know, a bit more self-directed study and research and stuff like that. But really like in a lot of sense, it's like undergrad where there's a curriculum and you're doing classes and checking off all these boxes and stuff like that. But I thought Berkeley was amazing. I was like, oh my God, I, so I can go to the political science department and take grad classes there. I can go to like all these other departments and access all these brilliant academics um, in different departments. At the same time, I thought that the level of training in the psych program was woefully inadequate, right? Like it was one semester of stats and then sort of another another semester of like kind of stats, but it was actually just this kind of old faculty member just talking with, with like no, no, no work or anything like that, just kind of talking and sometimes writing on the board, um, uh, just imparting their wisdom verbally kind of like the old days it's like we're in villages sitting around campfires and that was all the methods training people got and I remember like probably about my second or third year watching a talk of like maybe like a fifth year student who was just like making all these sort of horrible inferences and mistakes and and then nobody like because we had this sort of politeness norm of like not like criticizing people in their brown bags and stuff like that nobody really sort of pointing out these like severe like flaws and inadequacies in their research and their thinking and I remember just thinking oh my god like this is supposed to be one of the premier public institutions not just in the US but in the world and Mm -hmm. these students are just not getting anything like adequate training to to really be good scientists and critical thinkers like then there's just not yeah, they're not, like, yeah, unless somebody is sort of bringing a lot to the table themselves or, like, you know, being taking a lot of initiative and, and going out and stuff like that, they're just, um, they're not getting it from this department. And I think, I mean, I've learned a lot from reviewers, for example. I mean, and this is one way that those students, you know, so if they, obviously, like, nobody wants to criticize them in a brown bag, but reviewers will criticize them. So, like... Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned this when we when we met up for coffee. Like I think that's one way that you can really learn a, a lot, uh, and people won't be afraid to sort of um, criticize you harshly and and tell you what's wrong with with your research. But yeah, it's yeah. So I guess I have mixed feelings. What are your thoughts? What's your experience? Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I might need to uh, take a cue from Smriti and uh, not talk about too much about my own uh, advisors and, and uh, department. But no, I can say some things. Um, well, first, I'd just say, like, I, everyone in our 
in the social area is all the faculty members are very dedicated to their students. Like they they do spend a lot of time uh, working with them, and like it's obvious that they really care about their success. And I think like the main um, the main areas where of improvement are really just like recognizing that some people need more direction and um, yeah, just like need a little bit more um, help in certain areas. And then when it comes to like classes and training, yeah, I agree. I mean, we had a, we have like, so we have like a research methods course, but in the one that I took, we mostly talked about like philosophy of science, which was fun and interesting. You know, I, I love philosophy, but no, no, like no one talked to us as a cohort about data quality or about like how to like what are the different tools for um, collecting data, analyzing it, like all the the, the nitty gritty details of how to do science well. Um, it's sort of just everyone does their own thing and is supposed to figure it out. And for stats classes, yeah, we have like two semesters of required stats, which is one of them is like an undergrad level, basically. I mean, it's at the grad level, but it's just ANOVAs and T-tests. And then the second one is like regression. And then after that, you can take more courses if you want, but you're not required to. And then... The other quant courses that you can take are they're in the quant department and um, all like taught by really famous big name professors who are really good at what they do and you know like they're the ones who've written the textbooks on SCM and MLM and all of the um, more advanced statistics that you might do and so we're getting a lot of like and, and if you are very quanty you're able to like really understand how these things work but when it comes to actually being able to apply it to your own research and run analyses yourself I personally have found it a little bit lacking um, I know that's not true for everyone but uh, I think that we need a little bit more in terms of yeah how to like take the theory and then just apply it to your work and how does it work like in the real world because you don't have perfect data that's normally distributed mm -hmm. and you know all the assumptions um, so was there not, yeah sorry that's getting was there not like a lot of so a lot of methods classes sort of have this element where our, you know we're going to do a project we're going to learn the method and then we'll sort of you'll bring some of your data and we'll try to sort of apply what what we've learned no, we didn't and, have anything like mm -hmm. that that's interesting because that's been my experience in um, a lot of methods classes that I took, which I think is good and, and helpful. Yeah. Adding that, adding that extra. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, I guess I still would say that, like, re regardless of the s selectivity of it, they're, they're just uh, bad grad students. Like, there just has to be... So what do you think makes a grad student a bad student? Well, I think, like, I mean, one thing is, yeah, sort of n n not being willing to take initiative. I think 
is a bad thing. Like to to sort of like give up on problems too easily or um, just I yeah I like I kind of think this this attitude of I need somebody to hold my hand. I need I need my advisor to show me everything and do the nitty gritty is a problem. Like because that's not gonna. Like there's always going to be challenges and confusing things and problems you come up against that you have to sort of uh, think your way through and and work out what what to do about and I think like if you give up too easily when you come up against those things that that would make I would be frustrated with a grad student who sort of refused to take take initiative or um, like try to solve problems themselves like I remember this is not I guess it was kind of a mentorship experience but I was one in one of my internships at this tech company there was this uh, high school kid who was like a nephew of some boss at the company or something like that so he, he was like on, on school holidays and like sort of doing this little internship himself and it was the most he was the most frustrating kid because like we were trying to like I, I didn't know much Python at the time and he knew like a little bit of Python and stuff like that and we had this job to do to like code something in Python and like as soon as like he got any error message he would just be like oh doesn't work and like literally <laughs> literally just like oh we're done doesn't work um, can't do anything more about this and I was just like well that's not how coding like co- <laughs> coding is 90% googling like it's 90% getting errors and then googling and like trying to figure it out and like but it just yeah he like kind of had this this weird attitude that if things didn't work perfectly the first time then that was time to like stop working for the day Uh, yeah no i think so i think if you had a grad student like that um I would not label them as bad to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, if you take... First of all, I think there are few grad students like that because in order to, again, like, to be accepted to grad school, you have to not be that kind of person because that kind of person is probably not going to be mm-hmm. getting good grades and doing a senior thesis and whatever, like, all the things that you need nowadays to get into grad school. But assuming that they are that kind of person... Um, I would start with trying to see, like, do they even know that 90% of coding is Googling? Do they even know that, like, an error message doesn't mean the end of the world? It just means, like, you have to debug and figure it out. And then, so I think, like, I would start there, and this is obviously just speculation, but I think, like, in most cases, that would solve the problem. Like, that would take someone who seems to be giving up easily about everything and turn them into someone who's like, okay, I know that when it seems like I should give up, there are actually concrete steps that I can take. I have the resources to solve the problems that I'm facing, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to go do that. I do, I, I do just want to say, like, I'm not saying it's impossible for there to be a, grad, a bad grad student, yeah. but after if if you've tried that and you've like provided resources and talked through like what are the barriers and mm. it still seems like they're not able to do anything on yeah. their own like well, that's something else well that's okay so like interesting case study um 
So recently there was a grad student fired from NYU, um, from the lab that I'm joining. Um, and I was shocked when I heard that, uh, like, cause I, I had never heard of that happening before. Like, and my experience at Berkeley is like, if you get in the program, they're going to give you a PhD eventually, regardless of the quality of your work. Like, cause you know, you can keep, just keep doing drafts of the dissertation and even if there's a student who literally needs you to like tell them what to write in each sentence, that's, that's going to be the process and they'll sign off on it. Um, nobody go fight. But yeah, so I was really curious what, what, ha- what had happened. Um, and it sort of turns out that this lab, um, does something that not many labs do, right? So they, if a student has a paper with statistical analyses in it, the lab manager will sort of try to replicate the results. So they'll run through the code to see if the same results spit out that are in the paper, right? So, I mean, it's fascinating for me to think how often that process might might be finding missing, like people not using that process might be missing mistakes that grad students are making all over, all over the world. But anyway, this particular student, it's like no matter what they did, their, the papers that they would write or the results sections that they would write would never be replicable. Um, and they would just sort of no matter how much time was spent sort of sitting down with them and going through, okay, this is how you run this analysis and this is where you take the numbers from to put in the results section and this is how you interpret the results of this particular statistical analysis. As soon as they went away and they did stuff on their own, they would come back with stuff that was wrong, sort of didn't make sense, couldn't be replicated and stuff like that. And and this department has this a requirement of like, I think in your second or third year, you have to have a paper out for publication. And the PI just never got to a point where they were comfortable putting anything out for publication because they just didn't feel like they could trust the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I think like from the PI's point of view, it was like, well, with this particular student, I feel like I literally have to do everything. Like I have to be watching every single analysis and I have to watch them take the numbers from the screen to put in the manuscript. And that, that's just not tenable. That like, that's not what this relationship is supposed to be. Like I, as advisor, yeah, it's my responsibility to teach them how to do things, but you know, if I've tried 10 times to teach them how to do this thing and they're still unable to do it and get it wrong. And I, I, they're in their third year and I still don't trust the papers that they're writing that like they're getting things right. What can I do? So this lab took the like extreme step of, of firing this grad student. Um, what does firing mean exactly? Were they like kicked out of grad school? Yeah. Yeah. I think they got given a master's, um, they yeah we left with a master's um mm-hmm. so yeah um and i like it's hard to know because i only heard one side of that story but i think like mm-hmm. the interesting thing about this student is that they were sort of a very happy-go-lucky confident personality so they they were always they were always sort of expressing this attitude of yeah no worries i've got it i understand 
yeah, that, yeah like that's clear now I've got it yeah no worries no I, I'll go do it it's going to be fine it's going to be fine and then just constantly um, showing that they, they were wrong so they, it's almost like there was a a lack of acknowledgement on the part of the grad student that they were struggling or that they didn't understand things um, and that contributed to the yeah. situation I mean your point of view would be Oh well, you just have to spend more time, right? Like you just no, have not to <laughs> find what they don't understand, or like find what's going wrong. And I think, yeah, that's fine to say, and it's probably true on the micro level that like er- mm-hmm. every mistake you could pinpoint and and find some cause, and there is probably a certain amount of time that you could put into this one student that would stop stop them and and fix all these mistakes and stuff like that. But man, I mean. Where supposedly these, a PhD from an elite institution means something. Like, it's supposed to be hard. Yeah. It should be hard, like, right? Like, and, and the idea that some students might fail and, and, like, flunk out is kind of natural if it is hard, right? Like, it shouldn't just be everybody just comes in and gets a rubber stamp and, like, whatever help you need to get that rubber stamp and get that PhD will provide for you. But I think that's how it operates at a lot of places. Well, okay, I think there's two things here. One is, like, whether it should be hard or not, and the other is, like, whether you should be, like, rubber stamping and just giving people the PhD, because I I personally, I don't think that it should be anywhere near as hard as it is, but that doesn't mean that I think we should just, like, let people get their PhDs. I think they should have to, you know, do good, rigorous work. But that shouldn't be like a struggle. Like people shouldn't be crying every weekend, thinking like they're a failure because they can't figure out how to do their work, which is what a lot of grad students' experiences are like. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that doesn't like. I think the view of like, well, it should be hard, is sort of masochistic, masochistic in a way that like. It doesn't have to be, right? Well, but I, but it should be rigorous, and it should be. If it's not hard, then it's easy, right? So well, that is I mean, the, okay. that is like rubber stamping, right? And there's like let's no, I mean, clarify there's... that because it's not hard to get a PhD, as far as I can tell. It's hard to like be successful and get a job. Like that's what's mm-hmm. hard. It's not hard to go through a program and have people sign off on your dissertation and go through calls, and that's not hard. I don't think it's not. It's not hard in the sense that, like, everybody can do it. That's true. Like, everybody who's doing it does it and they, they get it. Like, but I think it is still a struggle. Like, people feel like they're struggling throughout the whole process, pretty much. Most, most grad students. And so it's, it's weird because, like, it is, they do feel like it's hard, but it's not, like... But they still all get it done. Right, know? right. It's, um, it's a... But, it's a okay. <laughs> It's a fantasy. Yeah, it's a collective mistake. It's like, oh yeah, it's so hard. You're preparing for calls. Oh yeah, like so. Has anybody ever failed calls? No. Okay, great. So like, yeah, s- <laughs> yeah, because like we're just but, neurotic people in general. But okay, but going back to the student for a moment, because I don't, I don't actually think that you know spending more time with them is the solution, mm. and I wouldn't. That's not what I would do if I were in this advisor's position. I think after one or two times of this, like. Them sort of like explaining, and then the student being like, "Yeah, yeah, I got it," and then not getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would try to adjust the approach of like 
really making sure that they explain it back to me mm-hmm. instead of just saying, yeah, yeah, I got it. Mm-hmm. Like, prove it. Mm-hmm. Prove to me right now that you got it mm-hmm. before we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if that continues to fail, like, I do think that they shouldn't be in the program um, mm-hmm. and that kicking them out was probably the right choice. Yeah. I think accepting them to the program to begin with was the wrong choice and so so interesting you say that because so we, we we're having this conversation over drinks and so and this pi was like talking about how they felt betrayed by the effusiveness of this student's like recommendation letters from sort of mm-hmm. their undergrad institution and they had sort of had these weird experiences of like talking to those people who wrote those letters and the people that wrote the letters going, oh yeah, I was, I was a bit surprised that you accepted this student. Um, well, I you thought, wrote like, a good letter. And yeah, that was his reaction. He was like, well, you, you said they were awesome <laughs> in your letter. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other problem. We should have a separate part about that, but I mean, letters of rec mean absolutely nothing, right? Like, because you're going to find people who are... Like, you only will take them from people who are agreeing to write a good letter. Mm-hmm. And so, like... Any, and anyone can find, like, two or three people who they just really like or who just feel bad for them mm-hmm. or think that they deserve to be mm-hmm. in academia uh, regardless of their skills. Yeah. And, yeah. Have you written many yet? Uh, I've written a few... Like, yeah, two or three. And, yeah, I did not feel good... There were maybe one or two of them that I felt like I was being too um, effusive in my compliments. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. so I, I actually, like, <laughs> I respect the hell out of this kid, but I, I want to tell a story. So, like, one of my first couple of years at Berkeley, I was interviewing potential research assistants. And, um, you know, the job was basically you were going to take an iPad, go out on campus, ask people if they could fill out, you know, a five-minute survey, right? And this one kid, he was like, he, he came in and he was just like, uh, yeah, no, it doesn't really sound like uh, something I want to do. Um, I was like, okay, well, I, I respect your honesty. That's fine. Like, there's 30 other students applying for the position, so that's fine. But then, he, so he got up and he was like, so um, I was wondering if you could write me a letter of recommendation. Because <laughs> he wanted to study overseas and he needed letters of rec. And I was like, oh, no, no like, I, I don't think I can... <laughs> do that like it's really something you you have to earn and like I don't really know you and you you haven't really done anything um and he was like ah yeah cool 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 all right then uh but it like (laughs) that is so funny I I was just like wow like is this what is this country like I couldn't believe that he he couldn't I couldn't believe the asked but I guess like if you don't ask you don't receive so I I respect the uh the shots but but yeah so I've written a lot of re- letters of recommendation and you know some of them like literally it's like okay well I, I taught you for a semester right and you mm-hmm. you were fine in the like you were like I don't know in the top 25 percent of the class and you didn't say much in the class and I I really don't know you and I'll try to write the letter that really makes it clear 
this is all I know about this person. Like, I'll just say, yeah, like I taught them in this class and, you know, they performed well and, you know, I'll look back through the grades and be like, yeah, and they got a, they got an A on their, their final project. So, you know, um, and they were, you know, they were fine. Like, they were, you know, they didn't cause any problems in the class and stuff like that. Definitely when it's, when it's a letter for somebody that you do really believe in, I think there are ways of, um, showing that right like you you right you, wait sorry so you would write that like you have written that letter of like the student is seems fine yeah yeah because like yeah. you're definitely not supposed to like you're supposed to tell the student i'm sorry like i think you did great in the class but i don't really have the i don't know you well enough to yeah. write a strong letter for you you should find someone who oh. knows you better Oh. So you probably caused a bunch of students to like get rejected from whatever they're applying to. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Now <laughs> that you say it, I, I guess I'm just like, yeah, you're asking me to write a letter, and you, kn- they know how much I know about them, so I, I feel like they understand that that's what that's what they're gonna get, but um. Yeah, no, good point. I'll say that. I'll definitely say that in the future. I guess, like, my, my other thought was, like, okay, well, if they're just asking me for a letter, I'm, like, the last resort. Like, they don't have anybody else, so I, I guess I should do it for them. But um, that's a good point is just to say, yeah, look, I, I'm willing to do it for you, but this is, this is all I can say because this, this is all I really know. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, like, we always, uh, anytime, like, I talk to an undergrad, uh, I'll say, like, you, what do you want to do? And this is the standard advice is you want to ask people, can you write me a strong letter of recommendation? Mm. Not just can you ask me a letter of rec? Mm. Can you write me a letter of rec? Because, like, mm. then there, it leaves them wiggle room to say, like, no, I can write you a letter, mm. but it's not going to be super strong. Um, now that I then, think you know, about it, other... I probably should have written a letter for that dude. And <laughs> <laughs> just explain my experience of it. <laughs> So I, yeah. I've known him for one hour, oh, and, and <laughs> he said he didn't want my RA position, but he's definitely forthright. His strengths, yeah. strengths is like, you know, asks for what he wants. Yeah. Wow. He's a go-getter. Um, no, but I think I do think there are ways of really showing in a letter if you really do believe in somebody and you you are you do know what they can do and stuff like that. Like I've, yeah, I've, but there, I've written yeah, some so. really effusive letters for people and stuff like that. And they've been, yeah, but I think it's basically impossible to tell the difference between mm. that and like, because like in our lab, mm. we have undergrads uh, who, who are working in the lab. And like one of the standard things we talk about when they sign up is like one of the things you're going to get out of the lab is a letter of mm. rec. Mm. And we don't say, that depends on whether mm. you're an exceptional RA or not. Mm. It's just, you know, you're volunteering your time. We don't pay them. Mm. Uh, that's just yeah, how it works. And so they're volunteering their time. And one of the, the things that they get in return is a letter of rec. And mm. so mm. then I'm left in the position of my RA is asking me for a letter of rec. And obviously I need to write one because that's what I've committed to. Mm. But also, you know, they were average yeah, RAs. Yeah, isn't, isn't that your fault as their mentor? Um, yeah, I mean, probably. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think uh, 
some of it is my fault. Oh, really? Maybe not. Oh, so they could be bad RAs. Interesting. That's, uh, yeah, but okay, just to like, <laughs> just because I need to, to save myself here. I do think there's a difference between an undergrad RA who's volunteering for like four to six hours a week and yeah, it's not a grad student it's not who's selective. committing. Yeah, and also but grad students are like committing their yeah. lives to. But UNC yeah. is pretty selective. I mean, how many applicants? What's the percentage of acceptance rate? People there? get accepted. Yeah. I also I'm think not you, sure. you. I think you might have vastly overestimated how hard it is to get into grad school, in terms of the acceptance rate. Before you said like one out of a hundred gets accepted. That'd be like a one percent acceptance rate. I think it's well above that at most institutions. Like Berkeley's like thirteen percent or something like that. Hmm. Really? That seems very high. I think we should we should check this. Uh, a timeout. Check out. ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Let's do that. Okay, timeout. Okay. Uh, okay, unpause. Okay, so what what did we find? I mean, the clo- the statistic I found for Berkeley is like fifteen percent uh, for the PhD acceptance, which does seem high. I mean, I, I've I've looked at applications for the social psych program, and there were a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, just going by these numbers, it looks like it's close, close to around 15%, very close to what I suggested, 13%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I initially heard 30, but, uh, 13 is very close. Um, and then I found something, I didn't uh, really have time to like understand the method that they used for this, uh, data collection. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think this is actually comprehensive across all, oh no, it's seven. Okay. Sorry. So this is whatever, wherever the data is from, we can put in the show notes, but um, they say that it's 7.9% acceptance rate for doctoral uh, okay. studies in social psychology. And then it's, uh-huh. it, I, yeah, I misread it because school psychology is 31%. So school psychology is much less selective. Uh, um, right. But yeah, 8%, and that's like across uh, a lot of different schools, apparently. So it's but, like one out of 15 or so. So d- does that help convince you that they might, mean, might be bad grad students? <laughs> I still think that's like pretty selective. Yeah. And, you know, the people who are applying to programs are usually uh, pretty good to begin with. Although, I don't know, I think there are some students who just like send out like 30 applications and mm-hmm. just like try to... Um, have that sort of selection strategy. Yeah. So I guess like, yeah. Another thing that I think makes a bad grad student is just um, caring more about social change than science. Like coming. This is another podcast though. Like, but it's yeah. it's it's all I see, honestly. With. Like the, I would say the majority of people entering graduate programs in my experience are basically like, yeah, this is a, um, this is how I'm going to change the world. This is going to, yeah. this is how I'm going to shape the world. Um, th- uh, I'm going to save this group of people. I'm going to like, rather than I'm going to advance human knowledge. I have this question I want to find the answer to. I'm going to uncover truth. It's going to be, it's, it's really more like I already know the truth. Um, and I'm just going to 
learn the tools to prove everything that I know is already true is true and it's going to change the world in all these uh, beneficial ways. And I I have complicated thoughts about that, but yeah, I think that's another another quote. I think I did have a rant I wanted to go on about a brown bag I went to, but I think that's probably enough podcast yeah for today what do you what do you think rambling for a while yeah Um, yeah yeah and i I think we covered a lot of ground it it almost mm -hmm. it was very academic it felt like a kind of a black goat type part but like don't worry listeners we'll we'll get back to the more you know interesting controversies uh hopefully in future episodes um but yeah, yeah I, I just hope that some of your former students who didn't get into those positions will come hunt you down <laughs> and uh, demand some sort of reparations for mm, what you did to them. For my crappy letters. I yeah. Okay, yeah. All right, if they want to if they want to I'm here. Uh, I'll be waiting. <laughs> like like that last scene, that scene in um, Kill Bill where she she tells the daughter, she's like, yeah, you know, if you grow up, she kills her mom. She's like, if you grow up and you have a problem, you can, you can come find me. So yeah, my, yeah. my former um, students. Who... <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, while we're here and on the subject, I will, uh, put in some plugs. So I'm, um, on the executive board for project short, which is an organization that's trying to help short academics. Student- um, <laughs> <laughs> trying to help underrepresented students get into grad school. Um, and we can talk more about that at some point. But we are ha- actually holding a panel on uh, how to choose an advisor, a uh, good oh. one, who will make sure to uh, y- you know, show you the hidden curriculum and uh, help you through the process and, and train you well. And all so, right. and you're all yeah. If, you're all grad students giving this advice. Uh, yes. <laughs> wow. I, it's somewhat presumptuous, like to be like, ah, oh, this is. I know, you know, based on, like my extensive experience, but like well, applying to grad school I mean, once it's... and with two advisors, and I'm <laughs> gonna tell you how to choose a good. Advisor. Yeah, I just, I just think yeah. it's a little pompous. I mean, I. I'm pompous myself, like, I can't judge, but, like, grad students are just so knowing about this stuff so often, like, and and I just think, like, do you, I don't know, do you really, are you really in a position to be giving this advice? I don't know, anyway. Well, sorry, okay, sorry, so <laughs> sorry. To, <laughs> you ra- ra- you cut it in the middle of my plug. Yeah, it's uh, no, but you know, I think like you know, it's a panel. There's going to be multiple students who will have different perspectives, and it's it's advice. So you know, you, and you know where it's coming from. So you can, can evaluate I it. Um, I think we filled our quota for uh, white men. <laughs> But, uh, no, actually, you know, if you're interested, uh, we can talk about that. But, um, yeah, so that's going to be on October 14th. I'll put the link in the show notes. And if you know any potential grad students who are Mm. applying this season, please share that with them so that they can get access to that advice and then use it or not. Uh, That's up to them. Yeah. I'm going to close this episode with Randy Newman, Short People Got No Reason to Live. 
Wow. Um, great song, great song. Yeah, as that a, was a, as a five foot person, I uh, <laughs> take a, a little bit of offense to that. That was just a better time in our culture. Where you, could just, <laughs> you just release a song like that. Everybody knew it was a joke. Oh, come on, <laughs> shorties, take a joke. Um, all right, great. Uh, well, good. Good first episode. Uh, I'm very happy to have a co-host that's going to help me. Uh, it's going to help me a lot to uh, find the will and motivation to keep putting out pods. So um, yeah, thanks. Great to have you on board. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Unless you have anything else you want to plug. Um. No, that's it for now. Just yeah. Okay. Well. Um, yeah, have a good weekend, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back. Hopefully, my microphone will arrive soon. And um, we need to get you a microphone, maybe. Yeah. Um, I hear they pay um, postdocs well. <laughs> so feel free to send me one. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, co- it's coming out of your salary for the pub. Oh, so. man. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. See ya.